0: beginning of uh, chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Therefore I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Let's pray. Lord, help us to understand your living word and help us by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to be changed. We pray that that uh, power that we were singing about would be very real and present in our lives right now. That we, in a sense, would be raised up, that we would be set free, that we would walk out of this place new people because we have met with you, the living God. Open your word to us, then we pray, and let us hear in Christ's name. Amen. If it falls to me to start a fight to cut out the cancer of bent and twisted journalism in this country with the simple sword of truth and the trusty shield of British fair play, so be it. I am ready for the fight, the fight against falsehood and those who peddle it. My fight begins today that speech has actually now become famous because in many ways it was the speech which sealed the fate of Jonathan Aitken. Aitken was uh, uh, not, as we now know, wielding the sword of truth. His words were a hypocritical show which ended not only in his resignation from uh, uh, government office but actually, in the end, in his imprisonment for perjury and attempting to pervert the course of justice. Today, though, five years after that speech, and, and less than a year after his conviction and imprisonment, Jonathan Aiken is famous not only for his sword- of-truth speech and his subsequent exposure as a hypocrite, but also as, uh, at the moment at least, Britain's most high-profile penitent. As the newspapers um, have repeatedly uh, put it, Jonathan Aitken has found religion. And uh, predictably enough, there's a lot of scepticism flying around right now about Aitken's conversion. Everyone from uh, Jeremy Paxman down is enjoying making rather snide remarks about St. Jonathan's repentance. In some ways, I think it's not surprising But uh, it's important, I think, for us to look a little more closely about why people are so sceptical about uh, such things as repentance. See, as a nation, I think, we are a people without depth more and more these days. You know, the revelation that Jonathan Aitken's fine words were just just a a surface cover, hiding, in fact, a, a hidden corruption is, is meat and drink for us. It confirms our common belief that actually goodness is only skin deep if it is there at all. What we uh, frankly don't believe is that anyone really can be changed in their hearts. We're people who deeply sense the need of that. You know, the rise in the popularity of the such things as counselling and alternative religions and uh, meditation techniques and self-help books and so on, indicates actually that people have a hunger for change at the core of their being. And again and again, when you look at these, uh, uh, these alternative offers of help, you find that they are saying that we must delve deep into who we are to be transformed. But actually we've become uh, increasingly sceptical and disillusioned by and large about that quest. Jonathan Aitken may now trumpet his conversion as he trumpeted his integrity before that disastrous libel trial, but he's not going to change. We don't really change anyway, do we? See, it's actually my belief that we have lost this Confidence. We have lost, lost this, this ability to, to change deep in our souls because we've lost the ability anyway to examine the depths of who we are. And two weeks ago, I uh, suggested we lost sight of what real love is, didn't I? Because we've lost sight of the depth of God's love. We, saw, we see real love just in, in very superficial terms as just, as just a duty perhaps in the past or just a, an emotion now. But Hosea portrays God's love as being far, far deeper than that. God's got, he makes, uh, in fact, Hosea experience an extraordinarily painful thing, marrying an unfaithful wife who then runs off with, uh, with another man. And he says that Hosea has got to not just wash his hands of her, but actually go to her to buy her back from this, uh, this man who may well have been a pimp, to uh, look after her, to wait for her, to woo her. You cannot do that. You cannot, in fact, be uh, uh, engaged in restoring a relationship at that profound level if you do not know the depths of your own heart. God's accusation against the people, you see, is that they have no idea of the depths of his heart and therefore, in fact, they have no contact with their own hearts. They don't know about God's agony that, that, uh, that uh, he is put, they are putting him through because of their rebellion against him. They think God's love is just some sort of eternal, benign feeling that he has towards them. Because of that superficiality in their attitude, they actually are so superficial themselves that they never really change. We saw last week, didn't we, that 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 loss of contact with the profundity of God's love actually has had disastrous consequences both in the fabric of uh, the the, uh, society of Hosea's day and in the fabric of our society. Well, this week we are going to see actually that that superficiality that we so easily just um, live with renders us utterly unable to change we're going to see in one sense why the journalists who are inclined to be sceptical about uh, professions of repentance like Jonathan Atkins, are right. Actually, Hosea is going to say they're not only right, they're more right than they think they are. But ultimately, we're going to see that those journalists are wrong. Let's unfold that then in, in chapters 6 and 7 of Hosea. First of all, we're going to see why skeptics, those who doubt professions of repentance, are actually right very often. They're right because professions of resp- repentance come trip easily off our lips, especially on those moments when we have been brought down a peg or two. Come, let us return to the Lord, they say. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the, water rain, the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. It's a model statement of repentance, actually. You know, God may have torn these people to pieces and injured them, but that was only to bring them to their senses. His ultimate intention, they say, is to heal them, to bind them up. And God will do that quickly, willingly. After only a th- two or three days, he will revive them and restore them so that they can enjoy his presence. As we acknowledge him and press on to him, he will show himself to be utterly faithful like the rising of the sun, like the, uh, like the winter and the spring rains. It's a beautiful picture of repentance portrayed in those verses. It's the sort of sentiment that deserves a press conference to announce it, doesn't it? with the simple sword of true repentance and the trusty shield of divine fair play, I will press on to acknowledge the Lord. It's formally correct, but it's actually rank hypocrisy. Verse 4, what can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew disappears. Actually, that word love, again, has popped up. Do you remember it was a, a, a word, chesed, that we learned last week? Chesed is a word which describes deeply passionate, deeply faithful love. But their so-called love is about as permanent, says Hosea, as the, as the dew on the grass or the mist in the air on a summer morning. By the time the sun has beaten on it for an hour or two, it's just a distant memory. God's love may be as faithful as the rain that comes faithfully season after season, but our love is as faithful as a wisp of mist over the river. If we're not up early enough in the morning, we'll never see it. These people are not penitent, you see. The people of Hosea's day are hypocrites. That we often find that we don't really know what repentance is all about at all. Verse 6, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. That word translated mercy there is this same word, yet again, this word chesed, which means, which keeps cropping up. The thought is that... There, that uh, you see, they had thought they could express repentance in a, in a ritualized form. A sacrifice here, a burnt offering there, and all would be well. But no, if they were really going to know God, such rituals were not going to be adequate at all. Actually, they were going to be positively harmful in one sense, because they would direct people away from this primary need to learn how to love. Now, more than once, Jesus quoted this verse to the religious people of his day because they thought that they would got rid of all idolatry in their day. They thought that their good religious habits, their punctilious righteousness would make them okay with God. But Jesus uh, exposed the fact that they had no sense of God's compassion, no sense of God's mercy, no sense of God's love. They hadn't begun to grasp the faithful, painful way in which God loves us, and they certainly hadn't begun to mirror it in their lives. So all their religious observances, all their energy that they put in to staying on good terms. All of that, said Jesus, is useless. I wonder, could he be saying that to us today? I desire faithful love of your fellow believers, which expresses it whenever you meet together. Not church-going. I desire compassionate and sacrificial giving of yourself, not just tithing your money. I desire a heart which longs to know me personally, not just regular attendance at communion services. I desire hearts which are prepared to be changed by the reading of my word, by hearing it proclaimed. Not just Bible reading and listening to sermons. I desire people who long with the very core of their being to pray to me. Not just people who say their prayers. I desire reality, not ritual. And you see sadly so often in the church people have the most beautiful statements of their own repentance and yet it does no more than cover up a fundamental lack in their lives, a lack of love. See, The journalists are right to be sceptical about professions of repentance. But Isaiah says they're actually more right than they think. That's what he goes on to to draw out for us in the the rest of our passage, which uh, goes to the end of chapter 7. He uses image after image in these verses to try to show, in fact, how deep... The problem of these Israelites is. We're just gonna pick out a few of them along the way. First of all, he says that their rejection of God is a very, very long-term habit. Chapter six, verse seven. Like Adam, they have broken the covenant. Covenant, they were unfaithful to me there. You call it a long habit. Understatement, really, isn't it? He's saying the breaking of our relationship with God goes back to the very foundation of the human race, to Adam himself. How often have we heard the excuse that that, um, uh, our sins are just the sins that are common to mankind? People have been sinning like that down through the ages. Why do we think it's so serious? Hosea says, Yes, we have been behaving like that down through the ages. You're right. And down through the ages, from the very beginning, it has cut people off from God. Adam was banished from the Garden of Eden. And everyone who follows him is banished from God too. They have broken my covenant. In fact, he goes on to say, chapter 7, verse 1, that... um, our sin is, is an incurable disease. Whenever I would heal Israel, the sins of Ephraim are exposed. The crimes of Samaria revealed. A friend of mine uh, called George, who's a vet, uh, was once kicked in the abdomen by a horse. And uh, his abdomen, um, I hope you don't remember this over lunch, his abdomen was actually split open so that that his intestines were only held in by his shirt. And uh, George was rushed off to hospital, actually still fully conscious. And this was a small hospital where he went. He uh, was taken out of the ambulance and uh, a doctor opened up his uh, shirt George said he went as white as a sheet, put his shirt back together again and put him straight back in the ambulance and sent him on an hour's journey up the motorway to the nearest big hospital. This doctor who had come to heal him when he really saw the extent of the injuries realized that they were far, far beyond his abilities. And George suffered awfully he traveled up that, at that motorway wondering whether he would be alive at the end of the journey. Well, God is saying, I am like that doctor. I actually feel myself out of my depth in one sense. When I approach them to heal them, when I, when I actually um, uh, open them up in my presence, what do I see? I see dreadful, incurable sin, which I cannot just overlook. Verse 2, They do not realize that I remember all their evil deeds. Their sins engulf them. They are always before me. Our sin is an incurable disease, says God, that when he comes to heal it, He simply exposes how terrible it is. Then he says that our passions, in fact, are like an uncontrolled fire. Verse 4, they are all adulterers burning like an oven whose fire the baker need not stir from the kneading of the dough till it rises. On the day of the festival of our king, the princes become inflamed with wine and he joins hands with the mockers. Their hearts are like an oven. They approach him with intrigue. Their passion smoulders all night. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. They devour their rulers. All their kings fall. None of them calls on me. Hosea uses this image of an oven. Ovens, of course, in his day were normally heated by a carefully controlled fire. But this oven, he says has been uh, untended and has actually got totally out of control. By morning, he says, the fire is blazing so hot that it's far too hot to cook the bread. If you put the bread in this oven, the bread will just be incinerated. So too it is with their desires, he says. They loved wine, they loved sex like we do today from the most uh, senior members of society to to the most humble, from the prince to the viewers of Channel 5, they enjoyed having their passions stirred up. They enjoyed this, this heat, not realizing actually that such unrestrained passions turn a productive and positive heat that could once have baked bread and done something good into an absolutely raging inferno, which now only engulfs and destroys those who are in its heat. Hosea then continues his kitchen theme. He says that their lack of integrity makes them uh, uh, like uh, a kitchen reject. Verse 8 of chapter 7, Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat cake, not turned over. In Hosea's time, sometimes they cooked things on a griddle as we do today. And if you've done that and have tried to serve up something which is only cooked on one side, you will know that uh, griddle cakes which are uh, not turned over are uneatable. Well, Hosea says his people were like that. If you looked at one side of their life, the side that had been nicely baked, you could think all was well. They went to make, made the right sacrifices. They went to church. They followed a lot of the customs of their people. But then on the other side of their life, they, they, uh, uh, they also engaged in all sorts of practices of the nations around, mixing it all up perhaps for a little bit of assurance that uh, we'll take the best insights of the God of uh, Israel and the best insights of the gods of the world around, and then we'll really have it made. Hosea says that is an absolute disaster. You're like you're half-baked. In fact, in uh, 1895, the um, satirical magazine Punch had a cartoon showing a superior-looking gentleman giving a meal to a young curate. And the the, uh, gentleman said, I'm afraid that you've got a bad egg, Mr. Jones. To which the young minister replied, Oh, no, my lord, I assure you, parts of it are excellent. Of course, that was lampooning, that obsequious, naive, anemic attitude that parts of the church had in the 19th century actually sucking up to uh, their good, respectable members of society, not worried, not thinking about the ways in which those people were sunk deep in hypocrisy, but just simply reassuring them that parts of their life was excellent, not realizing that that made them like Hosea's half-baked griddle cake, utterly inedible. Fit only for giving to the dog or throwing in the bit. But there's more. Hosea goes on and he says, this dalliance, this, this pattern of life that they have chosen has made them prematurely old. Verse 9, foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Most of us have seen people whose lifestyle has made them old before their time. Well, says Hosea, What happens in our physical frames happens in our soul too. We don't notice it, but we become weak, aged, tired, moribund in the very depths of our being. And he says, not only does it age us prematurely in our hearts, it also makes us frankly silly, verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. Israel was starting, you see, like, like we are today, to be aware that she was being batted around by forces far greater than herself. And she thought that uh, the solution was to, to flit between those superpowers on her borders, now making an alliance here, now paying bribes there, now making a bit of resistance there, now capitulating and so on. In the same way that so, so often people today actually feel themselves to be bashed around by life. They feel their hearts to be unstable. They have a sense that actually they are at the mercy of forces greater than themselves. But what do they do? Instead of seeking to really understand that coherently, They pick a little bit of one therapy here and a little bit of insight from Eastern mysticism there and perhaps a little bit of an insight from Jesus and they think mixing that all up will solve their problem. It will not. Frankly, these things contradict each other and to think that we are going to be successful like that is to be as as lost and silly and harried as pigeons on Trafalgar Square. In fact, we will get caught, not by those uh, forces opposed to us, but by God himself who has got thoroughly fed up. When they go, verse 12, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like birds of the air. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Because, you see, Hosea says the fundamental problem that underlines all of these things, is that we have walked away from God. We have walked away from God's love and there is no easy way back. Verse 13, Woe to them because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them. But they speak lies against me. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. They gather together for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I trained them and strengthened them, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn, they are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. They will be destroyed. And Jonathan Aitken knows that diagnosis of our problems. See, false repentance stems from this superficial view of our problem from God, our problem with, um, before God. The sceptics about Jonathan Aitken's repentance actually see only a man who's got into a very sticky situation and has resolved to, uh, like, a, like a good cub scout, be a good boy from now, now on. They are sceptical, rightly, about that sort of repentance. Such changes of heart are always superficial, always temporary, always useless. But Hosea says that those, those uh, reporters are actually more right than they think. Because, he says, we are suffering from an illness as old as mankind, an incurable illness, an uncontrollable, fire-like illness, an illness which ruins us and ages us and addles our brains and actually makes us God's enemies. Oh, no, 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 says the uh, editor of the newspaper. Now, don't give me any of that fanatical stuff. I'm sceptical about repentance but I'm even more sceptical about such drastic statements of our lostness. Hosea says to him, you haven't realised, have you? You haven't realised that the reason for your cynicism is because you precisely have not realised how deep mankind's problem is. Not just for Jonathan Aitken but for you. At one point in his uh, book, Pride and Perjury, Jonathan Aitken quotes C.S. Lewis to describe what he has discovered about repentance. Lewis says, Now repentance is no fun at all, It is something much harder than merely eating humble pie. It means unlearning all the self-conceit and self-will that we have been training ourselves into for thousands of years. It means killing part of yourself, undergoing a kind of death. In fact, it needs a good man to repent. But here comes the catch. Only a bad person needs to repent. Only a good person can repent. The worse you are, the more you need it, the less you can do it. So we're lost. Every person has to come to that point in their life if they are going to become a Christian. There is no way round it. Because only at that point, only when we realize actually that those reporters are more right than they think, will we discover and hear the words of Jesus with joy. Because the skeptics are wrong because of Jesus. one point, Jesus brought his disciples to that same sense of despair that Hosea has been leading to us. And they cried out, actually, who then can be saved? And Jesus, at that point, gave them a simple answer. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, not with God. All things are possible with God. God provides a way. You see, in his son dying on the cross, we actually see Dr. Jesus who comes to us, who sees our incurable terminal illness, and instead of sending us off to some greater expert, actually says, I will take that illness on myself and die on the cross that he can be healed. In his Holy Spirit, we see, we find God coming into our hearts. We find a a power which is greater than any power that we have in ourselves to change and repent. But you see, we will not put our trust in Jesus. We will not be open to God's work in our hearts by his Holy Spirit until we have realized how hopeless and helpless we are without him. Now, on more than one occasion, Jonathan Aitken has said that he thanks God for his downfall because it has revealed things to him that it would have been impossible for him to see had he not been so dramatically humbled. He is a man who sees the last few years of his life as both a trial and a blessing. A man who has a deeper joy now than he ever had before question for us is, have we discovered those things about ourselves? Or are we still stuck with that superficiality, that naive surface confidence that all we need to do is march up to God again and make a few nice statements and do a few nice rituals and everything will be all right. It will not be if you have tried it you know your heart was not changed by it. Because only when we've seen how deeply difficult and how deeply necessary is repentance, can we really accept the love of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we would never be satisfied with the superficial. That we would never be those who make light statements with our lips when our hearts are not transformed. Help us to be those, Lord, who really discover profoundly how much we need you. And then, Lord, as we discover that, come to us, encourage us, reassure us of your forgiveness and set us on our feet again as people filled with joy. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.